All right, happy Monday, one and all. It is March 7th of 2022, and this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast at New Mexico PBS. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer, and we've got a ton of great things in store for you this week. We're going to kick it off with our line panel from our most recent show, which aired Friday night on New Mexico PBS. We have a terrific line panel that includes Jessica Onsuras, the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, also former state senator Dee Dee Feldman, and Merritt Allen of Vox Optima PR. And we were tracking, as a lot of you know, here on the podcast, if you listen throughout the legislative session that wrapped up not that long ago, the governor's push to create a hydrogen hub here in New Mexico for hydrogen fuel. This is spurred by uh, over $8 billion in federal dollars that could be available for this. Uh, it's dubbed as a green, um, a, a green renewable energy source. Uh, but the, the real story behind that, a little more complicated. Here in New Mexico, it would come from using uh, the extraction of natural gas. And so environmental groups were not happy about it. Some lawmakers were not happy about that. So despite being revived several times, it did not even come up for a final vote in that regular session. But the governor is not wasting any time. She obviously believes in this and is pushing forward. So she has signed an agreement with several states, including Wyoming and Utah, I believe, to uh, create a joint effort to uh, create a regional hydrogen hub, again, using the same technology, the same approach. And so we wanted to find out what the line opinion panelists think about this and why the governor has her heart so set on this hydrogen hub for New Mexico. So here is host Gene Grant. Thank you again to George Klapashak from the Ukrainian Americans of New Mexico for putting us in touch with the professor. We'll hear from three other members of that organization in a little over 10 minutes. For now, we're talking hydrogen. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has been determined to put New Mexico on the map when it comes to hydrogen, and she did it again this week. New Mexico is now part of a four-state coalition with Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. That group will lobby together for a part of an $8 billion kitty in federal money tabbed for hydrogen development. Now, it comes after the state legislature failed to pass tax incentives for hydrogen development and storage, you might recall that. Um, Dee Dee Feldman, why is the governor so determined on this issue? Well, she's got her eye on the $8 billion that uh, are available through the infrastructure bill mm -hmm. coming down from Washington. Uh, she seems to uh, uh, want to overrule the legislature, right. which, uh, which uh, killed uh, not one, not two, not three, but four different attempts to um, to table this initiative. Mm -hmm. So uh, she she wants to do it. Uh, so does Patricia Lundstrom, the um, uh, head of the Appropriations Committee and the um, the representative in whose district this hydrogen hub, if if it if it comes to New Mexico, right. uh, would be located near Pruitt. Mm -hmm. Uh, New Mexico. So um, it's, it's definitely skirting the legislature. It's also uh, doing it in spite of the, op the universal opposition of environmentalists mm -hmm. uh, nationwide and in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Nearly 30 groups came before the legislature and said, um, you can't prevent pollution by creating pollution. Uh, which is what they say hydrogen does because it utilizes natural gas and it then emits carbon dioxide in the uh, in the process of uh, producing hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea here in the governor's plan is that this would uh, this would utilize so-called blue hydrogen, right. uh, which is a little bit more environmentally friendly and involves um, sequestering the uh, carbon di dioxide underground. Uh, well, that's well and good, but we don't, we're not there yet, for mm -hmm. sure, by mm -hmm. any means. Uh, but they are uh, going ahead with this anyway by executive order, 
and hoping to join with these other states, submit a proposal and get around a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, Jessica, you know, considering the backlash that Didi's describing quite well over natural gas consumption, you know, during this session, we heard it. Is the governor also ignoring public opinion by making this move? I'm not sure that that's completely accurate. I think the public isn't really well enough schooled on what exactly hydrogen fuel is and how it's created. Mm -hmm. I think that um, what you've seen given to the public are both of these extremes, which is it's pollution, um, pollution creating. It, so in any controversial issue, words are um, the 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 way to sway one person or one way or the other. And so you see people calling this clean hydrogen, green hydrogen, and in the other camp, you hear them calling it fossil fuel hydrogen. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that there is still a lot to be said for educating the public about exactly what we're talking about here. You know, you tend to couch it in terms of we are limiting pollution, we're creating jobs, um, this is from the governor's camp. And then from the extreme side, you see environmentalists and their advocates saying, actually, no, is exactly as Didi said, you, you can't solve pollution by creating pollution. And then um, I think there, I've heard um, some arguments even saying that this is another way to subsidize fossil fuel um, yeah. operators in New Mexico. That's out there too. Um, Merritt, the idea, this decision by the governor I'm so curious your opinion. How does this impact your relationship with the Democratic leadership in the legislature? You know, soon to be ex-House Speaker Brian Egoff tabled, as Didi mentioned, several of those bills himself. What does that put her in relation with Democrats right now? Well, uh, I, I certainly feel uh, that after rejecting uh, much of her agenda, as she tried to move to the center as she needs to for re-election, mm -hmm. um, elections are divided, uh, decided uh, by the center, um, it, it's clear that she's uh, moving forward. And this is a, a state where there's always been a strong executive and a relatively weak legislature, and she's flexing that, uh, flexing that muscle again. Mm -hmm. um, this is a decision uh, I applaud. I think this administration has been uh, uh, far too dismissive of our extractive industries. Uh, uh, you know, let's remember that we are an oil and gas and coal producing state that was up until just uh, a week or so ago facing rolling blackouts this summer because we had no backup plan for the closure of the san juan coal facility okay. uh, as an energy state with a history in energy innovation let's remember the manhattan project happened here uh this is uh, hydrogen development and hydrogen research it makes sense for us um, I think we all know that fossil fuels have a limited life on this planet. Um, industry is moving away from it. Detroit is moving away from it. But it's not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to end next week. It's not going to end next year. So I think this is a smart move for New Mexico. And I think the political ramifications, uh, the governor is far less interested in what the legislature thinks and far more interested in what voters think in November. Mm -hmm. Senator, I'm curious, you know, part of this idea is that there's going to be, a, of this MOU, is that research and everything we're talking about hydrogen is going to be worked on uh, uh, between these three states, other states. I'm, I'm curious, you know, Los Alamos, Sandia, are they in this at all? I, you know, if I was the governor and I was rolling that out, I'd, I'd have those cats in my hip pocket actually going out the door with this thing. Honestly, do they have a, a, a play here, Sandia and Los Alamos? I think that the Environment Department has already signed an MOU with Los Alamos mm -hmm. uh, to study uh, hydrogen uh, and the production of hydrogen. So there is a role for the national labs there. And um, I think that it will take years, though, mm -hmm. uh, before they can adequately study this. Uh, and meanwhile, I think the rush is on. Uh, from what I'm reading from the governor, to uh, start this process as quickly as possible. And um, as much as we have the legacy of uh, Los Alamos, the creation of the nuclear weapons, our involvement in oil and gas, mm -hmm. we also have the legacy of abandoned mines, of uranium tailings, of uh, all of these uh, byproducts of uh, both oil and gas and the nuclear, uh, the nuclear weapons cycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is usually 
felt most uh, deeply by uh, indigenous populations and particularly around the Grants and uh, Gallup area uh, up into Arizona and northern northwestern New Mexico. These are the folks that are um, saying, you know, we shouldn't hang our hat on research completely. Yeah. Uh, but remember, it affects real people on the ground. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Grant, can I, or Jean, can I add to that just Absolutely. really quickly? Please. Mm -hmm. So just to the point that Didi was making as far as research for this particular fuel, um, you know, we spoke to the governor a couple of weeks ago, and I think what people also need to understand is that this isn't something that's new that's out of left field. Our oil and gas industry has been using hydrogen fuel in certain operations for a while now, and in certain ways, they are actually leading the charge in research to, um, to find ways to make this um, you know, fiscally possible, more environmentally friendly. So mm -hmm. when we spoke to the governor, she was pretty adamant in saying we already have, as New Mexico, as a leading oil and gas um, state, we have resources in place that can help us succeed and even surpass <clears throat> expectations when it comes to hydrogen. I, I'm glad you got that in, Jess, because I, I got a chance to talk with uh, and Merritt knows this, our Energy Secretary Granholm, when she was here in New Mexico on her tour of this part of the country talking about hydrogen. That was the exact point you just made she was making here in uh, New Mexico when she was here. Your point you just made, that this is already in process and that industry feels like they're gonna get on top of this way quicker than environmentalists think they can. And so we'll have to see. Anyway, thank you all. We'll chat once more with our line panelists in about 10 minutes. First, a panel discussion with three members of the nonprofit group Ukrainian Americans of New Mexico. All three have family in Ukraine right now, and all three have unique perspectives on the tragedy playing out in their home country. All right, we're going to stick on the environmental front here for a minute, and we encourage you, if you don't already, to sign up to follow our land, which is our environmental uh, branch of the station here at New Mexico PBS with the very talented Laura Paskus. We do regular Facebook, YouTube lives for that, just like we do for New Mexico and Focus. And on Friday, she caught up with State Senator Jeff Steinborn. He uh, proposed legislation in the recent session that would have kept Holtec, which is a private company that is getting ready and uh, is planning to um, dispose of nuclear waste here in New Mexico. Of course, we have the WIP uh, Waste Isolation Pilot Project here in New Mexico, and Holtec has a somewhat sordid history with its relationships with other states, uh, and that is part of the reason that Senator Steinborn was uh, sponsoring this legislation to keep this from happening here in New Mexico. And so Laura wanted to find out what exactly happened, why it didn't go through. It really didn't even get uh, a full discussion in this legislative session. Uh, the senator says he will be bringing it back up, so we've not heard the end of this, but the wheels are in motion. And so what does this mean for New Mexico? What is some of that history around Holtec? Wanted to get to the bottom of that. And so, again, if you want to watch these Facebook, YouTube lives when they happen, be sure to follow Our Land New Mexico on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, there's also the Instagram page as well. But here now is correspondent Laura Paskus from Arland and State Senator Jeff Steinborn. Senator Jeff Steinborn, thanks for joining me today. Good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks. So today I want to talk specifically about Holtec International and its plans for southeastern New Mexico. Kind of just in a nutshell, what is their plan? Yeah. So this company, Holtec International, has got an application with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which regulates spent nuclear fuel, high-level nuclear waste in the country. They have an application to create what's called a consolidated interim storage facility in the state of New Mexico and to be licensed to ship uh, basically the entire up to and beyond the entire nation's current supply of spent nuclear fuel. Um, and uh, it would be a 40-year license with an opportunity to extend for another 40 years. And it's, it's got a lot of terrifying um, facets to it, which I will certainly go into, but it's, it's very different from what we're used to in the state. And I think a lot of people confuse this with the WIP facility in southeastern New Mexico. 
WIP is, is low level waste. It's basically defense facility waste like gloves and, you know, clothing and things like that used in, you know, plutonium production and testing. And, uh, but a lower level of radioactivity and, and kind of uh, danger, I guess, exposure to, to people. And it is a federal facility buried almost a mile underground in a salt cavern, basically. What this, is, what this proposal is, is a private company that wants to store this material in canisters, also licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, basically partially on the surface and partially buried. And the fact that it would be owned by a private company and not the federal government just carries lots of additional risks to the state. So I'll, I'll stop right there and so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is you mentioned this is waste that's coming from nuclear power plants. So there are nuclear power plants in different communities throughout the country where private companies have operated nuclear power facilities, selling electricity, fueling entire economies. And now there's this waste product and they want to send that to New Mexico. This seems like a, a this seems like a bad deal for us. Can yeah. you talk about the, the sort of privatization of this waste and, and what whole, like, where does Holtec fit into this? How do they get that waste and why do they send it here? Yeah, so Holtec is a company that really up till now has not been, they've been a supplier of the nuclear, of the nuclear power generation industry. And they've kind of recently got into the waste side of it and even bought a decommissioned power plant and, and now actually has title to some spent nuclear fuel, some canisters of spent fuel. So um, yeah, it's, it's you know, private um, nuclear power companies, as you said, generate um, this nuclear waste as a byproduct of creating nuclear power. Basically, it's these rods that are used to generate um, generate energy and power and heat. And then they're put, once they lose enough to generate power, they're then put into these cooling ponds and then they're put into what these, what's called dry cast storage. Yeah, and they are now full of this stuff. And the federal government has had a legal mandate since the 80s to find a permanent repository. And that's where Yucca Mountain came in. That was gonna be the permanent repository. And under federal law, the federal government is responsible for uh, finding a permanent repository. Well, that did not work out because Yucca Mountain has been terminated as a project, at least it did under President Obama. Congress, there's some in Congress trying to restart that project. But uh, so meanwhile, these power companies, they're left holding this material. Granted, they generated, generated it and those communities did. And in all fairness, New Mexico uses a little bit of nuclear power too from the Palo Verde nuclear plant in Arizona. But I mean, we're less than one half of 1% of the nation's population to keep things in perspective. And, uh, and we are going to be weaning ourselves off nuclear power also, which is part of our utilities plan. So yeah, they, they want to get rid of this stuff. The communities that have this waste nearby want to get rid of it. And so this idea of a, since the permanent storage has not worked out, this idea of interim storage has kind of come up and it's a convenient solution for the industry to get rid of their waste so that they can produce more of it. And for the communities, frankly, they have this waste, they don't want it. And so it's a really, it creates very interesting dynamics of haves and have nots in the country. And this is where New Mexico is really embroiled in a national debate and this is a national policy issue. So you mentioned it's an interim storage facility and the NRC is working on a 40 year license. Yeah. What happens at the end of the 40 years? Where does it go once it's not an interim storage here? Yeah, well, that's the rub. And that's, that's definitely one of the big problems is there is no permanent facility. And scientifically, everybody acknowledges that there needs to be a permanent repository that this stuff will be radioactive for a very long time, needs to be put someplace safe for a very long time. And the federal government actually defines repository, their legal responsibility means a deep geological repository. So that is the structural bar that the federal government has legally set up that we have to achieve as a country. The problem is they don't have one. And so, so what everybody has, a lot of our congressional leaders, our governor, has said is that we will become the permanent de facto site because there is no permanent facility. And uh, it's certainly not designed to be the forever site. I mean, it's an interim facility. It's obviously not a deep geological 
solution. And, uh, and beyond that, these dry casks are not, there's not a dry cask in existence. The, the technology hasn't even been around uh, longer than a couple decades. So what, so the, the concern here, one of my many concerns is that we're technologically being asked to be a guinea pig for what happens when we start to get a few decades out and we have all these canisters sitting in the desert in southeastern New Mexico? What if they start to fail on a massive scale? But um, yeah, it's and then what happens if the country goes uh, if, the, if that company goes bankrupt? They're required to put up a bond with this, but who would then be required to take over this waste and where would it go? It could be an absolute disaster. So yeah, it's all of these are question marks without answers. They're not really question marks. They're questions without answers because there's no permanent solution. So New Mexico, this is basically a private sector solution being hoisted upon New Mexico right now in lieu of a real federal solution, which is what's needed. So you and Representative Matthew McQueen introduced House Bill 137, which right. did not pass this session. Can you tell me a little bit about what that bill would have done and, and what happened with it? Yeah, and the bill never got defeated. It just never got brought up for a final vote on the House floor. And, you know, that bill made it to the House floor with plenty of time left. But of course, uh, you know, uh, the other side of the aisle likes to slow the agenda down and uh, in the House. And so they started running out of time. And so the bill never got a vote. Yeah, it's uh, what the bill would have done is it would have barred New Mexico, barred companies from storing high level nuclear waste in the state of New Mexico until a federal permanent repository was in operation. And initially, the bill started off as just a complete ban on on storing the materials here. And then we we uh, amended it to say that it couldn't happen until there was a federal repository. And so but the bill also did some other things as well. It, it strengthened the state's um, radioactive consultation task force, which is something we created in law around the time when WIP came into existence. We created it for the state government to have kind of a executive branch interagency level working group to look at radioactive waste, or no, sorry, uh, yeah, radioactive issues and um, and then you know specifically be the interface with the federal facility. So this bill would have also strengthened that to include private facilities and add more members to it. So it's one of my obviously big disappointments that we did not um, get this done this last session. So, and I think I read that Texas passed a similar bill. And I know other states, you know, you mentioned Yucca Mountain, Nevada successfully pushed back against um, the permanent repository. I've seen other states. Why is it that New Mexico seems to keep having this issue and who in the state is, is like for it? It seems like so many people are against it. Who is a full, who's for it here? Well, there's some political leaders in southeastern New Mexico. New Mexico is a little unique because we do have the country's only national low-level nuclear waste storage facility, WIP. Um, there were a lot of concerns when that facility came into being. Now they have a uranium enrichment facility there called Uranco. Um, and so they've developed a comfort level. Um, some political leaders in southeastern New Mexico with kind of this economic sector. And so they saw an opportunity, actually, and they're the ones who put this in motion, some of the political leadership in southeastern New Mexico. They recruited Holtec into submitting a, this proposal to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So there's some of the big leaders for it. Um, ironically, right across the border um, in Texas, the oil industry is super against it because obviously we see the economics of oil and gas and how hot the Permian Basin is, and they recognize the risk of having an accident in the middle of that, of that um, economic activity. So our dynamics are a little different here. Um, and so unfortunately it's, we, I see the support kind of fissure along partisan lines, which is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, having said that, it's not, we, we have bipartisan, we have unique support across industries that don't typically work together that are opposed to that in New Mexico. But yeah, I think the other problem we have here is we have a much shorter session. And, you know, with a 30 day session, Texas has a 144 day session. They, you know, and they had a very powerful economic industry pushing for it. Whereas in our, our state, 
You know, we have the environmental community, which, uh, you know, the economic industry sometimes has more political muscle. But, uh, you know, the bill's gotten pretty far both times. It just it just didn't get pulled up for a final vote. And I uh, I'm disappointed and I'm not going to make excuse um, and why they didn't bring it up for a vote. But, uh, you know, this bill, a different variation of this bill passed the Senate last year. This time, it would have absolutely passed the House if it had been brought up for a vote, and I believe would have passed the Senate. So I think we're right there in New Mexico, um, but it is a missed opportunity that we didn't pass the bill, that's for sure. So in thinking about the support for for Holtec, for this industry in that part of the state, are we talking about like entire communities and thousands of people, or are we talking about, you know, a few people? Um, and I know that... It, it, yeah. No, I'm, I'm really glad you asked the question because it, it, I'm going to say a few people because it was some of the political leadership of those communities, specifically Hobbs and Carlsbad, who uh, formed a group called the Eddie Lee County Alliance to work towards this. Having said that, then there was another community right in that county, Jowl, who passed a resolution opposed to this, Lake Arthur. Um, so there are communities in southeastern New Mexico who have come out against this. And absolutely, we've heard from numerous citizens against this. Um, I remember uh, I'm the chair of the state's radioactive and hazardous materials interim committee, which is a House Senate uh, committee. We had a hearing in Hobbs. And, you know, the people that showed up were largely outside of government officials were citizens saying we were opposed to this. And um, so, yeah, so it's a good. So it's a really good question. There's not unanimous support by any means in that part of the state um, for this. But People all over the state are absolutely opposed to it. Um, the proposal is to bring in this waste, these casts through rail, and it would come in through all parts of New Mexico via armed guard and um, different communities around the state from Las Cruces that I represent to Albuquerque and the all Indian Pueblo Council of Governors have passed resolutions saying they don't want this waste coming through their community. Um, resolutions representing about 40% of the state's population. So a great number of people in the state absolutely do not want us to be the storage ground for this material. Wow. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the company, which has been in the news in other states recently. Holtec was, was um, debarred from working at the Tennessee Valley Authority in 2010 due to a criminal investigation, and they were fined $2 million. Um, there's an ongoing story in New Jersey right now where the state wants $26 million that it had given the company in tax breaks, the state wants that back. And then in New England, the Environmental Protection Agency said recently that the company was misleading the public in Massachusetts about its plans to dump radioactive waste and um, from a nuclear power plant into Cape Cod Bay. Um, specifically, you know, what, what do we know about this company and, and sort of the good faith effort that it would be putting forth here in our state. Yeah, you know, I've been really troubled, honestly. Hokey is the word that comes to mind. Um, you know, I've been at the forefront of having hearings on this issue with this committee, trying to educate the citizens of the state, asking questions of the last administration. And you would think with a proposal of this profound magnitude and risk that they would acknowledge it, that they would be forthright about it, that they would to assure us of their safety capacity, they would meet us and they would be transparent about it. Instead, what they've done is they've actually hired lobbyists to try to kill uh, my bills to have more transparency on this project. They uh, obviously worked very hard to kill this bill this last session and brought on additional lobbyists during the session to, uh, to fight it because of course this would have banned it. And, um, and they've, they've, they've kind of, had some pulled some funny stuff during um, during the uh, draft during the process that we're in now. They uh, one time got a letter of support from some legislators and refashioned it to call it a resolution from a legislative committee and sent that to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Commission saying that a committee of the legislature had endorsed it when in fact it was a letter of support and they put the word resolution at the top. Which, was out, which is absolutely outrageous, the federal regulatory entity for keeping us safe. So I 
had to, of course, as the chair of the committee, send a letter to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission saying, oh, gee, I'm sorry, we never passed a resolution to, to endorse this project. That was a misleading statement. And, and again, you know, they, uh, they want to walk back statements that they've made about the liability to, to the state and the communities if an accident were to occur. Now they say, oh, no worries, we, we got it if something happens. So, um, yeah, they, they haven't shown themselves in the state of New Mexico to be like a solid, trustworthy uh, partner. Instead, they're, they're uh, just really trying to shove this thing down our throat. And so I know these things take time. There's a process. Where in the process are we? Is there still time for people to be involved? Kind of what's happening? So they are applying for a license. And unfortunately, we're beyond the public comment period. And the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission is trying to get technical information from Holtec. They've had to go back to the company two, three times asking to get questions answered and concerns that they have. Holtec has not provided that information. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has sent letters to Holtec. And this is public. Um, people can see their correspondence. Um, they go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, and um, search for this. They can... And they can, I think, get on a list that way where maybe they can get notified. But basically, we don't know when they're targeted to receive an, a, a possible permit now because or license because they're not they haven't provided the Nuclear Regulatory Commission what they've been asked for. And, you know, that's where we're at. There, there's movement in Congress to certainly try to fight it. As you said, Texas passed a law um, banning it there in the state of Texas. Our attorney general in the state of Texas has filed suit against the federal government saying it's illegal to do consolidated interim storage because it violates states' rights, because states really have very narrow avenues to even have a voice in this process, which is outrageous. With un unlike a federal facility, which we have statutory veto power over, unless Congress overrides us, not so with a private facility. So it's really a weakness in federal law. And then finally, several days ago, Senator Heinrich introduced a bill with Senator Cruz. How's that for bipartisanship on spent nuclear fuel? Um, basically prohibiting the use of, of a fund that utilities have been setting aside, uh, paying into, to ultimately ship this waste to a permanent repository. I think one of Holtec's business plans is to tap into that fund for this interim storage. And uh, so they introduced a bill, Senator Heinrich and Cruz, to prohibit the use of that money for so that'll be a good door to close if we can. So, so there you go. It's this thing's being fought on multiple levels, and we're certainly, you know, the governor is steadfast against this. And um, I certainly intend to introduce this bill again, even if they were to get a permit between now and next year. The facility will not be built by then, and um, or even started uh, because there's a lot of rail issues that have to be worked out. So I'm going to keep fighting, and the citizens of New Mexico. What they can do is they can educate each other. They can thank you for reporting on this. That's so important so people can learn about the project. And, and there's groups around the state that are certainly, um, and I apologize, I don't have a website handy. I probably should have, but there's advocacy groups that are fighting this. People can get involved. They can speak up. They can let their legislators know, hey, next time you have an opportunity to vote on this, get this bill passed. Take the bullseye off New Mexico. Right. Um, look at what's happening. Look at what's happening in Ukraine right now. And I apologize for, 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 for getting this in there. But, you know, Chernobyl, a massive, you know, new global nuclear disaster there. And then um, this nuclear power plant being targeted and literally saying, you know, these whole regions and countries would be uninhabitable if they these sites took a direct hit. So we don't want New Mexico to be the dumping ground for all this material. Right. And we will put links to the various news stories that I mentioned, as well as the NRC's website and Holtec's website. We'll put all those in the comments. Senator, thanks for talking with me about this. It's so complicated. I appreciate you breaking it down for us. You are welcome. And thanks for uh, reaching out to, to uh, do more public education about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Senator. Okay. All right, we encourage you to read in the episode description for much more on Holtec and this entire situation. We'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. Also, if you're listening to this Monday morning, want to uh, point your attention to 
another Facebook Live Laura has planned, and that is at 10 o'clock this morning, New Mexico time. And it's an interesting bit of mystery about how people are cutting down trees, uh, sort of environmental um, terrorism, I guess, if you want to say. And nobody seems to know who it is or what's going on. And so we're going to be looking into that again, 10 o'clock today. If you're listening to this later, encourage you to go to the Arland Facebook and YouTube pages to get caught up on that story. But now we're going to head back to our line opinion panel from last week, uh, a story that Searchlight New Mexico has been on top of as well as others, which is really what the state is going to do after realizing that there were millions of dollars that was overpaid for COVID unemployment benefits. And it is a, a big mess right now where obviously folks who got these checks did not realize they were doing anything wrong and they were stimulus in a way. And so much of that's been recirculated. These people don't have the money to just give back. There have been waivers filed, many waivers denied. Uh, Lots of states are dealing with this. Lots of states are taking different approaches. Some states like Rhode Island have just said, you know what, that money's gone. We're moving on. New Mexico seems to not be in that vein, but how will this all play out? We wanted to find out what the line opinion panels think, and this is a terrific group for that. So let's head back over to Gene Grant and the line opinion panel. Thank you again to our guests from the Ukrainian Americans of New Mexico. We touched on a few more issues during our 20 minute plus minute discussion about the invasion and our response to it. You can watch that full interview on our New Mexico In Focus Facebook and YouTube pages. Now let's welcome back the Line Opinion panel back one final time to discuss an issue that's been flown a bit under the radar according to data obtained by Searchlight New Mexico. The state mistakenly paid out $106 million in pandemic unemployment aid or PUA as it's known. And now it's demanding that money back from the citizens who unknowingly received it. Now, is that fair? And how could such a major error happen? Let me throw that first to Dee Dee Feldman. Senator Feldman, how could it happen? And why are we asking for money back here? You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's obvious that the Department of Workforce Solutions has been overwhelmed uh, mm-hmm. by uh, claims during the pandemic and also uh, new funds coming to the state through the various federal, uh, through the CARES Act, for example, uh, and other and other funds. Yep. Uh, but they're really, it, th- this seems quite incompetent, uh, in my view, and really uh, a terrible injustice mm-hmm. uh, that they are now asking people to pay back uh, money that was sent to them by their own error. Um, I I mean, it is the Department of Workforce Solution that calculates how much people are due Mm -hmm. in unemployment. Uh, Individuals don't calculate that themselves and figure out whether they're being overpaid or underpaid. And then to be suddenly suddenly, um, faced with a $13,000 bill, I mean, it is an outrage. Uh, for the uh, Department of Workforce Solutions, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, I think, are justifiably uh, uh, mad about then having this money that they supposedly owe deducted from future checks right. that they are due. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just another one of those things that's going to make people hate government, even though. Uh, they're 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 the recipient of funds from the government. They they are uh, now going to be left with a very sour taste in their mouths. Yeah. Jessica, what do you think about? I know you know this. I'm not news to you, but you know, Department of Workforce Solutions. Their own numbers show 17,136 people. That's nearly 20% of PUA payment recipients have filed waivers asking to be excused from paying back the money. Over 17,000 people. So let me just say, when I first read this searchlight piece, um, just blew my mind. And I will say this about the, that particular piece of reporting. The original number for overpayment was somewhere close to 240 million, not the 106 that they just recently corrected it wow. to. So even then it seemed really extreme. And now even with the 106 million, it's just, it's a crazy number, but you're right. Um, you know, we're talking about real people here. We're talking about, um, 
real people with families, and this is going to affect them greatly. Um, uh, the last report I read said something like 14,000 people are still waiting for waivers to be exempted from repaying this. And it's just huh. dragging on. It's just dragging on. That's wild. Hey, Merritt, the same issue, as you know, is playing out in Arizona, Michigan, New Jersey, Connecticut, lots of other states. Should, you know, should some of the flame blame fall on the federal government for failing to be specific enough with the criteria for PUA money? Well, I, absolutely. And I, I think the, the root cause of this there is just so much money out there. Yeah. It's a ridiculous amount of money out there that went to states, flooding aid, started with the last administration, continued with this administration. New Mexico is actually one of the slowest states. We couldn't even figure out how to spend all this money. Right. And that, that should tell you something. The situation is almost ludicrous. We're printing money um, or just manufacturing it electronically, I guess, uh, you could almost say. Mm -hmm. Um, so the notion of going down to the lowest level, the households where it matters, where this is keeping people, um, out of poverty and feeding their family to claw it back from them when we're a state who couldn't even figure out who was going to spend the money, whether it was going to be the governor or the legislature right. and that whole fight and paying lawyers to work that out in front of the Supreme Court to claw it back from the individual household to me. Um, that's just, it's just me. Right. It's just me. No, I don't think, I don't think it's just you. A Senator, interesting, Rhode Island, as you probably know, is waiving all overpayments, saying the money is, quote, long gone. <laughs> you know, in our state right now, more than 2,000 waiver requests have been denied. I, I just, I don't, yeah. where are we headed on this? Well, how did that happen? Right. Exactly. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, you know, I think that clearly uh, New Mexico ought to just give a blanket waiver mm -hmm. uh, as a result of these overpayments, particularly since we are, if not the poorest state or the, uh, the lowest income state, at least in the top three mm -hmm. uh, of the lowest income states. And yes, there's a lot of money, but yes, there's a lot of unemployment and there's a lot of need right. in New Mexico as well. So all the more reason for um, the Department of Workforce Solutions mm -hmm. to, um, to uh, enact a blanket waiver and then enact for the public an accounting of where this money uh, went to um, and what they're doing with it. Mm -hmm. Merritt, I, I just, I, oh, I'm so frustrated with this topic because wh why aren't we, as Didi says, we are flush right now. Who are these people inside Workforce Solutions turning down these waiver requests? That's what I want to know right off the top. What is well, the criteria? I, 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 How do they decide who gets one? Who decides who doesn't get one? We don't know any of that at this point. Right. That's true. There's very little transparency on this. And mm -hmm. then my question is, what is the state going to do with the money? Again, we have not been able to figure out how to spend the, the uh, deluge of federal funds we've gotten. What are we actually what substantive purpose are we going to put this these funds to? Right. Uh, uh, again, I, I think a blanket waiver, the funds are gone. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and we saw this um, in Congress with the Paycheck Protect Protection Program, you know, two cereal box tops and, a, and um, uh, an application put out in crayon and your Paycheck Protection Program waiver got approved. Wow. I think New Mexico could easily do that here. I, I, I got to say, you know, in a poor state where money is just a very tricky thing, if Workforce Solutions wants to take it to its natural extent, and start issuing warrants and get, bringing people to court to get this money back, I say good luck to them. You know, this, this ought to be a very interesting deal. Uh, go ahead, Senator. Look, they got a thought there. But they don't have to. They don't have to do that. All they do is deduct it from, their, from future unemployment right. checks. Right. So they still have the upper hand, and uh, they don't have to take affirmative action. All they have to do is just withhold the money. Mm -hmm. Now, the Department of Workforce Solutions, I think, bears some checking. Um, they are. They have an acting secretary and have had an acting secretary right. since their previous secretary, Bill McCanley, left the left the state. Not just left the job, but left the state very prematurely. So um, I think I think this bears some some inve further investigation. And I really applaud Searchlight New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, thumbs up to them. Thank you for mentioning them. Thanks again to our line panel. Amazing as always this week. Now be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics. We had a lot of them you can comment on. <laughs>
Get to us at Facebook, Twitter, or our Instagram pages. We'll end this episode where we started with the line opinion panel that you just heard. Again, one of the great things we love about this podcast, we hope you do too, is it allows us to bring you uh, content we just don't have time for every Friday night on our show on New Mexico PBS. One of the things we do each week with our line panels we're getting ready is go around the table and just see what is top of mind for people, what they're following that we just don't have time to or not going to be talking about in the show. And so this is a great format to be able to bring you that conversation as well. And again, just can't say it enough, but a great line panel this week of D.D. Feldman, former state senator, and Jessica Ansures and Merritt Allen. And so want to bring that to you here as well. And we hope that you find value in it. If you do, do us a favor, rate, review uh, the podcast that really helps uh, to uh, uh, boost the algorithm, help get it in front of other people's eyes, share it for us. That really does a lot. And uh, again, be sure also to follow us throughout the week on all of our social media channels. But here now is the line and one more thing. I'm Gene Grant. Here in the studios of New Mexico PBS, our line opinion panelists joining me right there on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, by tradition, we love to warm up by taking a turn at other issues. There are so many issues every week. We can't get to them all, so we want to take on some here. Jessica Ansuras down there in Alamogordo, always good to see you. What's your one more thing this week? Um, I think the thing that has captured my attention just actually yesterday, mm -hmm. um, speaking of upcoming politics, is this big snafu in Otero County over a, um, I believe the Secretary of State called it a vigilante audit of um, Otero County voters mm. um, related to the 2020 general election. So the county has spent something like $50,000 worth of taxpayer money to conduct um, an audit, and it's generally gone wrong from what we can tell up to now. Wow. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, what, what were folks looking to find uh, with, the, with the audit? Well, the, the county um, wasn't really upfront about exactly what they expected the audit to reveal. Mm -hmm. um, but they did hire Echo Mail and this um, volunteer force called New Mexico Audit Force to go door to door, um, knocking on people's doors to canvas. And um, what we found is that these canvassers, despite having no affiliation other than with the New Mexico Audit Force, are identifying themselves to voters in Otero County as um, employees of Otero County and asking for personal information. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so it's 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 been interesting to kind of watch what this audit process is doing. And we're still trying to answer that question, Gene. What exactly is going to wow. be the outcome of this thing? That's fascinating. Oh. I know you're going to stay on top of that. That's, that's an amazing thing. I, I, I can't even imagine. By the way, I should mention Jessica is the news director, of course, for the Carlsbad Current Argus. I mentioned Alamogordo. It's just a big territory down there she has to cover, that's for sure. Uh, Senator Dee Feldman is with us. As always, a pleasure. What's your one more thing this week? Well, my one more thing uh, this week is a, a story that has sort of come out um, and raises some danger uh, signals for me mm -hmm. about the atmosphere of bullying and uh, sexual harassment and intimidation in the roundhouse. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was a there was finally a story about it today. But um, the process is pretty clouded. Uh, it's not transparent at all. But apparently there has been a uh, a complaint of sexual harassment against Senator Daniel Ivy Soto. Mm -hmm. This is the third one uh, against a legislator in the past five years. Um, and according to the, the process, it goes to a legislative uh, ethics commission mm -hmm. or committee that is, um, that is composed, I think, of three members of the Senate. Um, it, it has all power to investigate, to decide whether this merits um, a charge of either censure or expulsion. Uh, but, uh, but my point is that um, this is kind of the fox uh, investigating the hen house mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, uh, it was, you know, it really seems like 
with these with these allegations coming out more and more, and they're from lobbyists, right. female lobbyists, mm -hmm. young women in the legislature who who feel that they're being um, the the power disparity between the legislators and the and them is being um, is being abused by the legislators themselves mm -hmm. who are, who and and throw alcohol into the mix as yes. well we saw another uh, instance this session uh, of a legislator um, uh, and DWI mm -hmm. um, but the but my, my my concern is that it's the legislators themselves investigating themselves mm -hmm. This is why we set up an ethics commission. Um, but the legislators were very skillful in excluding themselves from review by the ethics commission. And it seems to me that this is a prime example of, especially uh, when these allegations are very personal like mm -hmm. this, that this should be out of the hands of uh, the peers of legislators. Um, and put into uh, an outside force like the Ethics Commission. Didi, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. honestly, in your opinion, is that the eventual eventuality here? Are, are we just going to kind of bumble our way through this and figure out we need an independent commission at the end of the day? That you can't have foxes making <laughs> henhouse decisions. It just, no matter how many times this comes up, it, do you feel like there's the will to even have that independent commission at, at this point? Well, um, you know, in full disclosure, I, I work with Common Cause, mm -hmm. and we work very hard to get that ethics commission. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult to get yeah. because it was the legislators who set it up. And That's they, right. you know, it's, it's very difficult to get um, the um, people that will be regulated or judged to vote for the uh, for, to vote for the judges and the regulators. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we were lucky to get it in the first place, but mm -hmm. just the whole thing is we're lucky to even know anything right. about this whole process. That's right. Uh, according to according to the um, the rules of the Senate, they don't have to even disclose that this investigation is going on. And if the complainant did not make it public herself, and remember how difficult that is mm -hmm. for somebody to allege they have been sexually harassed. That's right. Um, but if she didn't disclose it, we would have no knowledge of this whatsoever. And I think the public has a right to know. Mm -hmm. Didi, one more question on this, uh, just because we haven't had a chance to talk about this on the show in depth. I was really shocked, and I'm not a naive person, but I was really shocked in that Mylon Simonich column a few days ago, if not a couple of weeks ago, about the drinking in the offices of legislators yes. during legislative time. And I don't want to name names here, but you're killing a bottle of wine in the daytime? I, I just, I find that just unconscionable that there are people you know, making decisions, getting loaded like this during the daytime. And then we're surprised when there's sexual harassment, when there's this much of, of, of free drinking, something seems very off the hook here. I'm interested in your opinion well, on I that. Think, I think what has happened is that there has been an acceptance and an enabling of drinking in places like the Rio Chama or yes. in the past in places like the bullring, mm -hmm. uh, which is just kind of an accepted part of legislative culture. Mm -hmm. um, and business was done in those bars. Um, mm -hmm. and, and now it's kind of bleeding over into the place next door, which right. is the roundhouse. Right. And um, I have been hearing more reports of people drinking in their offices, uh, legislators and lobbyists together Right. Um, and even uh, on all floors of the uh, of the roundhouse, mm -hmm. the basement where the chambers are, uh, and the wow. offices of the majority and the minority leadership are, and the governor's office and the and the legislative council. That's a lot of people. <laughs> it's a culture yeah. problem. I hear you loud and clear. It's a culture problem. And alcohol, maybe just because I'm an easy drunk, I don't, <laughs> I don't handle a lot of liquor well. I find this uh, unbelievable that people can be polishing off bottles of wine during the day and, and well, expect to be making decisions. I just, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I, I think, no, you are absolutely in the mainstream there. Mm -hmm. I mean, this diminishes public trust that's right. in our lawmakers. Yeah, that's the best um, bottom line. And, uh, it's gonna it's gonna explode 
Mm-hmm. It's going to explode later on if mm-hmm. people don't deal with it. Um, I wonder how many people would run for office. Let me kick over to Merritt here and, uh, for, for her bit, too. That would, If they ever had a no-drinking policy at the Roundhouse, I wonder how many people that would clean out that would never even bother to run for office, you know? And because I am a horrible and irreverent person, I've often thought it would be perhaps, you know, on military bases, they do this to as a motivational factor. Just put up a sign in the courtyard outside the Roundhouse, number of days without a DUI. Right. And see if, get, see, if, see if you could just get to, you know, one, one day. Um, and, and, you know, this is, um, I really wanted to kind of go back to Jessica's point as well, because I've been following the Ontario County audit and shameless plug, I wrote a column about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I write a weekly column for the East Mountain Independent that gets picked up by independent newspapers statewide and also down in the South by the Grant County Beat and the Silver City Daily Press. And I think it's worth pointing out, um, and I do have a separate topic if uh, mm-hmm. you'll indulge me, You're but fine. it's worth pointing out, the audit was approved by the all-Republican Otero County Commission and basically put the Republican County Clerk um, on report in a county that carried Trump by 30 points. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I don't get it. Wow. As a Republican, I don't get it. Just just throwing that out. I hear you. Well, let me ask you. Can I ask a question about this too, Jessica? Maybe you can answer. Are they investigating the 2020 election? Wow. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. With door-to-door canvass- canvassing and canvassing. I, I know, but I just know my people. I would not take well some stranger coming to me and asking me how I voted. I would not. Well. Know. The I think the bigger takeaway from this is that, you know, voters talk to each other in, in a, a rural, small Thank county you. like this, and they are tossing around words like harassment, and they're associating that with the Republican Party now in Otero County. So what kind of outcome is that ultimately going to have? Interesting. Interesting. Why one more thing. Sure. Um, something that's struck me is... Um, that New Mexico, I feel like, is really on the global stage again. And it is the war in Ukraine. And Jean, I loved your Facebook Live yesterday. Um, I thought that was incredibly profound Mm -hmm. and moving. But also, New Mexico is of strategic importance because of what is in our ground, Um, oil and gas and strategic minerals. And I know um, it can sometimes be controversial, but I just would like to offer as global citizens, it is uh, more ethical, it is more economically advantageous, it is better uh, from a humanitarian and an environmental perspective to get oil and gas and copper and strategic metals from New Mexico than it is from Russia. Hmm. That's all I have to say. I hear you, I hear you working on that. I mean, we all know part of the situation in Ukraine is they have so much in the ground that's so valu- valuable in the, in the uh, you know, global marketplace. Why not get us in the game, too? I mean, we can move beyond and copper. Poland. That's right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine has a lot. Poland has a lot. Mm-hmm. But Russia, you know, has a near mon- mon- monopoly on palladium. Um, they've had Europe in a stranglehold over natural gas. Europe is making some really tough decisions. Germany may open nuclear plants again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just read that. Uh, I think this all points to hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen has, uh, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for New Mexico. It's, uh, I think the development will start with fossil fuels. It will become cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't power this world and the, the power of humanity on this world without some cost. I mean, solar and wind, uh, those panels, those turbines, they wear out. Um, they're not easy to recycle if they're recyclable at all. Right. All of this will get better. We will we'll all innovate. We're not going to get out of fossil fuels tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot better for our planet to get them out of New Mexico than it is out of Russia. Interesting points there. That's why we love having you, Merritt, I swear. We'll have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights, but also Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS.
That's going to do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. Before we go, we uh, earlier in the show brought you some of an Arland Facebook Live on Holtec and what their plans are here in New Mexico. It's a great time to remind you uh, of our Arland newsletter. It comes out each and every week on Tuesday. Laura Pascas puts together some great highlights of environmental news going on in New Mexico as well as around the nation, around the world. It is really must-read each and every week if you are wanting to know the very latest environmental news and also hear from one of the most talented environmental reporters out there. That is Laura Pascas. So we encourage you to do that. You can find the link to do that in the description for this episode. But for now, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.